Hi, I'm Ellie Roark. I'm Wilson Gall. And you're listening to the Fledgling Theories Podcast, where once a month we bring you a new piece of bird research and chat about it for a half hour. You can find the article, as always, on our website, fledglingtheories.podbean.com, and follow along and join in the conversation on Twitter at Fledgecast. Today we're talking about an article published in Behavioral Ecology and Sociobiology. It's called Singing Behind the Stage, Thrush Nightingales Produce More Variable Songs on Their Wintering Grounds. So a thrush nightingale is a songbird, and we all know that they sing on their breeding grounds. And they sing for a number of reasons, um, but it's a sexually selected trait. So, so basically, they're defending a territory and uh, attracting a mate. And females choose their mate based on whose song they like. Would you say that's about right, Wilson? Yeah, I think there's quite a few studies that seem to show that. There's kind of two roles. There's a, a mate attraction role where the males are uh, sort of are singing to attract a female. And then there's also a territory defense role where the males are singing to keep other males out of their territory. Exactly. But the night or the thrush nightingale sings on its wintering ground, not just its breeding ground. And the question is, why? And is that different? Is the song that they sing there different somehow from the song on their breeding ground? Yeah, because both of those sort of well-established mechanisms, both, both of those things that songs do on the breeding grounds, which are well-established in plenty of studies, the mate attraction and the territory defense, those don't necessarily exist on the wintering grounds. If, if males are not defending territories, and I think the assumption is for most birds on the wintering grounds, they're not really defending territories, and they're not trying to mate, and, you know, they, these are not birds that form pair bonds where the pair like stays together all year long, uh, you know, many years in a row, the, the pair bonds are pretty short and temporary and they're on the breeding grounds. And to the best of anyone's knowledge, this, you wouldn't expect that to be happening on the wintering grounds. So both of the reasons for singing seem to not be there on the wintering grounds. Right, exactly. And yet the birds are singing. So the question is why? Why? What are they doing yeah. singing on the wintering grounds? So there is a theory that there is some territorial defense still happening on the wintering grounds and that might be true for some species but it seems to not be true for the thrush nightingale as far as folks can tell and then there's another theory that um, maybe testosterone levels kind of vary throughout the year and dictate when a thrush sings um, but other studies have shown that the testosterone level um, doesn't increase during the winter season and therefore probably wouldn't cause the bird to sing on its wintering ground. So these authors have proposed a new hypothesis, which is that the wintering grounds are kind of like practice for the breeding season. And they're rehearsing songs kind of backstage before the performance of the breeding season. And one of the things to note is that this bird has a fairly complex song. The song is kind of longish and has multiple different parts. They have different types of notes that they sing within a song, like a lot of bird songs, but, but there's lots of different parts and they sort of string all these parts together. And so one idea is that because the song is kind of complex and has a lot of different parts, that the birds are sort of practicing or, or learning parts of this song during the wintering season. Yeah, or maybe innovating new parts of the song or something. Yeah. Um. So let's play, we'll play a short clip of the Thrush Nightingale song now so you can hear what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. 
So what you can hear in that song is that there's a couple different repeated sounds. They sort of repeat a thing one or two or three times, and then they repeat a different thing, and at the end there's kind of that buzz. Yeah. But the song contains these different sort of syllables that they say multiple times. Now what the authors in the study were testing is this song is very structured and very stereotyped, and it's very clear. It comes in this regular structure with this buzz at the end, these repeated elements. And the authors were wondering, if the birds are practicing or learning somehow on the wintering grounds, maybe they'd basically be making more mistakes. So when they're singing on the breeding grounds, they're sort of in performance mode and they're doing it very well and precisely. Mm -hmm. But if they're practicing and learning on the wintering grounds, you might make mistakes. There might be sort of differences from one song to the next, even when they're sort of seem to be trying to sing the same things. So they had a few different ways where they tried to measure how consistent or how variable the songs were. And what they expected is that from one song to the next, so if you have a recording where a bird sings two or three songs in a row, and you have some element that it repeats in each of those songs, say it goes bereep, bereep, and then a few minutes later it goes bereep, bereep again. Right. They're thinking on the, on the breeding grounds, every time it makes that noise, that sound, it's going to be very similar. Yeah. Very structured and very similar. On they would the, expect it to have, to basically have perfected that little syllable and, and sing it perfectly every time. Yeah. Whereas on the wintering grounds, maybe that syllable would be different if it's practicing it or learning it in some way. So it'd be bereep, 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 bereep. Yeah. Who knows? Something like that. But they just expect more variability. So that's what they're trying to look for is these repeated elements within the song. Is the bird repeating it exactly the same way each time or not? And then also they were looking at how many different little sounds are in an entire song. Yeah. Because they thought maybe on the summering grounds the bird sort of takes its good sounds that it's very, you know, like that it uses all the time and it just sings those. On the wintering ground, if it's practicing or learning, it might be experimenting with more different sounds. So you might have a greater number of different sounds in a song. Right. So they were expecting more variability in the song in general and less consistency in each syllable. And that's roughly what they found. So, so the, the wintering population sang really inconsistently and in fact so inconsistently that something like 60% of the birds didn't even have the recognizable song structure that we just outlined there. Yeah, I mean, because the way the authors set up this question, they were measuring how consistent these repeated parts of the song were, which means they had to be able to look through the songs and find when is the bird repeating this syllable. Right, they had to find distinct syllables in order to analyze whether they were singing them the same every time. In 60% in of the birds they found on the wintering grounds, or they recorded on the wintering grounds, they couldn't even identify those syllables, those song parts. Yeah, they weren't repeated with enough precision to even recognize it as the same thing. Right. So they were able to find some small subset of birds. I think there were like seven birds or something that sang the kind of recognizable structure, but with more variability as they expected. Um, but it suggests that their study design didn't even really account for the actual amount of variability in the song, which is much higher than they were expecting. So they had two different ways of measuring this variability or trying to assess this variability, right? They had a quantitative measure and then they also had sort of a human evaluated measure. What Can you explain these two elements a little bit, Billy? Well, first I want to say the way that they're evaluating things 
both quantitatively and qualitatively, is by looking at spectrograms of these bird songs. So when we we experience birdsong in the real world by hearing it, but um, when you're studying birdsong, you can also basically feed it into a computer program that allows you to see the birdsong, um, basically graphing the birdsong. And you can see symbols and parts and um, segments of the song that are the same or different or whatever. You're basically looking at, at a spectrogram or sometimes called a sonogram of the song. And then you can also use the computer program to calculate things from that graph. So it sort of makes, it makes this black and white image where you've got the frequency and the, the amplitude or the loudness of the song turned into a graph. Yep. But then you can also sort of treat that as, a, a, as sort of data or information and measure things about it. So you, you can have the computer measure the frequency range. You can measure uh, how long a note is, you know, from the beginning to the end of the note. You can measure how loud the note is, is it, um, and how loud it is in different frequency bands. Right, exactly. So there's all sorts of, of things that you can measure in a very quantitative way about the spectrogram. Exactly. So that's the difference between the quantitative and the qualitative that you're talking about. You can specifically measure things, and that's the quantitative part. You can also just uh, develop general impressions about how things repeat based on looking at the sonogram. I mean, you can, so we'll put a link up to one of these songs on the, on the Podbean page, but if you look at the sonogram, which you can do at one of these links as the song plays, there's very clear shapes. Like each time the bird makes a note yeah. that appears as a very distinct sort of swooshy line or, or sharp little line or something on the sonogram. So it's very easy to look at these and say, oh, that's one kind of sound and that's another just based on the shape that they make. And so that allows you to do sort of a qualitative human judgment of this is the same note because it has the same shape on the sonogram every time. Exactly. So for this study, they did both a quantitative and a qualitative assessment. So for their quantitative assessment, they were, they were measuring differences in the specific syllables that they identified between uh, breeding ground birds and wintering ground birds. But talk to us a little bit about the qualitative analysis, Wilson. What were they looking for? from those general impressions. So what they did is they just had someone sit down and look at the sonogram and say, how many syllables did the bird sing in the song? And how many different types of syllables? So if it went beep, beep, chuck, chuck, blurb, that's <laughs> five <laughs> syllables, right? But three different types of syllables. The bleep is one type, the chuck is one type, and the blurb is one type. But the, and so they just sort of counted the different shapes, basically, or the different kinds of noises, and said for when you sing this many total notes, how many different kinds of notes do you have in there? Yeah. And so it was all sort of based on human, like a person just kind of looking at it. This introduces some potential problems, though, because these notes are not identical every time the bird sings them. Uh, some of them can look pretty similar. And so there's an element of real subjective human judgment that goes into saying, oh, this is a different note or this is the same note. Right. Deciding whether it's a, said chuck or chick or whatever. It's, it's all a little subjective. Um, and so part of what this study did in order to deal with that subjectivity is they had 10 different people look at these recordings and record their impressions of it. Yeah, and I think this is really important and critical if you're doing this kind of a subjective analysis. You have to know if multiple different people tried to do the same thing, would they come to the same conclusion? Would, would they 
categorize these songs in the same way. Yeah. Because if they don't, if I look at it and I think one thing and Ellie looks at it and thinks another thing, then there's really no point moving forward within an analysis. Yeah, exactly. Because you'd just be analyze, analyzing our sort of personal impressions of the song rather than anything fundamental about the song. So they have 10 different people listen to it. I think this is very important. There would be different ways to sort of measure statistically how well these people agree. And they didn't really talk about how or whether they did that in this article. So I think that could be improved a little bit, but they definitely have the right idea, which is that you have to have a lot of people do the same thing and, and you have to make sure they're all doing it in the same way. Yeah, exactly. It gets into, I mean, that's that's one of the foundations of the scientific method is the idea of reproducibility, that your observations can be verified by other people, that your methods can be reproduced by other people, and that um, that's all to help make sure that you're getting at a real phenomenon and not just uh, making something up based on one person based on one person's impressions of of the song. So I think if I'm recalling correctly with these ten people, they had people who knew a lot about bird songs and were very familiar looking at spectrograms. So these are not people with no experience. They're people who kind of do this all the time. Yep. But these were not people who knew much about this particular bird species. So they, they sort of didn't know the exact, they didn't have preconceptions necessarily about what to look for in this species, but they were very experienced with looking at sonograms of birdsong. Yep. So I should say there's this, you know, this is really, in this one article, we have two different, two very different frameworks of how to move forward with science and how to sort of, how to find or get at the truth or the underlying phenomena. One is, a, is sort of a subjective, we look at things and we say, hey, those things are the same or hey, those things are different. Mm. And the other is very quantitative where we're measuring frequencies and, you know, things that can be measured relatively objectively and then doing statistical analyses on these measurements to try to look for differences. So there's a qualitative and a quantitative approach. Both, I think, are perfectly legitimate. Both have a long history in science, and they can give you different kinds of insights. So I, Absolutely. But I, I think there's sort of a, there's always an, a, a, an attempt or movement towards getting more quantitative evidence when you can. There are some things that you just can't quantify very well. You need to use some qualitative evidence, but there's always the risk with that qualitative evidence that it will not be correct, that the, the, the person interpreting it is sort of interpreting it in their own special way and not really finding the underlying phenomenon. Right. It might be more subject to individual bias than a quantitative approach. So I just saw a lecture by a cell biologist, and, and it's this exact same dichotomy. So much of the work that he has done is looking at microscopes, and now they have these very fancy microscopes that can actually take videos of living cells. And he looks at where the proteins are in these cells, and he sort of dyes these proteins with a fluorescent dye, and then watches the proteins move around. And then they do things. They put some chemical in, or they knock some gene out of the cell, and they see if this changes how the proteins move around in the cell. Right. And much of what he does is sort of look at a, a photo from a microscope of a normal cell, and where the proteins are, and then he looks at a photo of a from a microscope of a cell with some gene knocked out and looks at where the proteins are, and just sort of qualitatively assesses, hey, are these different? And in many cases that works because the differences are just very obvious. So in some cases you might have all these proteins sort of getting into the interior of the cell, and then in the other case maybe they can't get through into the cell, and so they're just sort of all, the proteins are all stuck around the edge. So it's very obvious when you look at it, but it's still a very qualitative 
way of doing science, of looking sure. at two pictures and saying, ah, this looks different from that. Right, and you can imagine that it, it uh, is maybe works better when the, the more obvious the signal is, the easier it is to get the result from qualitative analysis. Yeah, and so part of what, I mean, what he was talking about in the lecture is how he's, they've been really working on finding methods to measure this and quantify these differences to make it a little more uh, robust and statistically analyzable. In part, too, because they now have these microscopes that can take many pictures a second, so he has terabytes of pictures of microscopes, <laughs> and he, he can't look at them with his eyes anymore. And so, yeah. so even right now, with this very technologically complex cell biology, they're doing the same thing. They have a, they have a very well-established qualitative way of doing science, and they're trying to make this more quantitative, trying yeah. to figure out how to measure all these elements that you know, historically you've just kind of looked at by eye. Both ways give very good insights into cell biology. We obviously have learned a lot from just the qualitative method. Yeah. But I think in all disciplines, there's an urge, if you can think of a way to quantify it, you really try to do that because it's likely to give you a more robust way to get insight into your system. Absolutely. And in this study, I mean, imagine if their sample size was massive. They had they had gotten songs from thousands of birds in the population. Um, if you were able to use the computer to do those quantitative methods automatically, um, quantify the segments of the bird song automatically, that would be vastly more efficient than looking through them qualitatively or even trying to do the quantitative methods by hand. Yep. So what was the gist of it? They had two different breeding populations here, one in Russia and one in Poland, I think, and then they had a wintering population in Tanzania Yep. in Africa. And so in terms of the variability, uh, the, the sort of how precisely birds repeated the same sounds, what'd they find? They found that uh, the breeding populations had very low variability. They were relatively precise in terms of repeating their syllables and the uh, number of syllables they sang, the, the kinds of songs they sang, and the, the Tanzanian population, that wintering population, had really high variability. Um, like we mentioned before, m many birds didn't even sing a recognizable song structure. So I think that if you're looking at the article, if you happen to have access to this on your computer, the key results are sort of figure four and figure five there. And these are some box plots, and it's just showing those quantitative measures of how similar the syllables were, and you've sort of got a box plot for each population. Basically what it shows is that the, the breeding populations are much more similar every time they repeat a syllable. Now this study, um, these authors, posted their data on a publicly accessible site. So there's this Dryad data repository, and I think this is something that's becoming much more common, is that either journals require authors to make their data available, or the authors do anyway. Right, and, and all in the name of reproducibility. <laughs> yeah, so the idea here is like, if for whatever reason, I, th you know, you thought maybe they didn't do their statistics quite right, or they, they did some funny statistical thing that you didn't know about, you could actually go download their data and do the analysis yourself and see if you get the same answer, see if you get the same result. That's yeah. the idea behind the data sharing here. So that's one purpose is reproducibility. The second is, being able to gather data from multiple different studies and use it later. So exactly. five years from now, if someone wants to do a bigger study of thrush and nightingales, they could get the data from this study and they could get the data from other studies and combine that all potentially, hopefully, 
and do a study. Yeah, um, the data collection part of, of doing science is actually a relatively high cost and high risk portion of the whole game. Um, yeah, it's very difficult yeah. to, to get recordings like this, so it makes a lot of sense to make the data available if you can. Right. So, um, so these data are out there in the Dryad repository. You could go download them yourself if you want. Um, and I did that this morning while we were eating breakfast, <laughs> uh, just to sort of see if I could make, you know, sort of reproduce some of their graphs. When I, when I get the data um, and try to sort of do roughly the same thing, do I get a similar answer? Yeah, does and it so, look like what they got? Yeah, and so we are starting a Patreon to help support the cost of producing this podcast. And you can uh, donate as little as a, a dollar per episode if you want, but if you donate a little more, $3 per episode, we're actually going to have some special content that you'll get access to. And one of those uh, types of special content will be short videos that look at some of the visualizations, the graphs in these articles. And so in this case, there'll be a, a video where we download this data from this article and we try to make some of the key graphs. We're going to try to reproduce that figure four and see if the data that they posted is good enough to sort of reproduce the results. And I would say from looking at a lot of other studies, the data that is posted on Dryad varies wildly in terms of how good or, or how understandable it is. Sometimes it's clearly just someone dumping a, a mess of files from their computer on there and you look at it and you have no idea what to do. And sometimes it's very well organized. So yeah. we'll see how the study did. Check that out. Um, you'll be able to see our Patreon. We'll put a link on the Podbean account. We sure will. So that's a fun little bonus for you if you uh, wanna wanna see. Okay, so here's my question, Wilson. So how do we know that um, all the birds in Tanzania, that they didn't just happen to sample a, a weird singing population in Tanzania? Yeah, so they t the article, the authors talk about this in the article, and they even, you know, the problem is, if I want to start a study birds on the breeding ground versus birds on the wintering ground, anytime you're doing any kind of sampling in science, you're trying to sample from the population of interest. The population of interest here is these birds on the wintering ground. The wintering ground is huge. Yep. Uh, but they took all of their samples from one area in Tanzania, a range of a couple tens of kilometers, I think. And so if there's something funny about that spot in Tanzania uh, that makes the birds there different from the birds everywhere else in the wintering ground, then you, you don't have a representative sample of your population of interest, which is the entire wintering population here. Yep. Um, similarly, they took recordings of birds and during a recording of an individual bird, that bird would sing multiple songs and they would measure multiple different things from these multiple songs. So you have repeated measurements of a single individual bird. Well, if that's just a weird bird yep. and it sings the first part of the song differently, but also the last part of the song differently just because it's a weird bird, then your measures of both the first and last parts of the song will be different, but it depends more on that bird being a weirdo rather than anything fundamental about the species. So anyway, yeah. there, are all, there are always these issues because it's all, it, you know, the cost and the logistical difficulty of gathering these kinds of data means that you can't just travel all over Europe and Asia to get your breeding populations and all over Africa to get the wintering things. You just can't do it. Totally. So you're limited to a few locations. And they did use some statistical techniques to try to account for some of this sort of correlation and nestedness in their data. Yep. And one thing to note is that they also are using the wintering bird 
data that these song recordings were collected for another study <laughs> and um, they're using them for this study as well so there is a little bit of opportunism yeah. um, here but but all that said I don't think that they really got around that potential problem I mean that when it comes down to it, they had two different breeding populations so that's good better than one but for the wintering grounds they really only had one they did look at some other recordings that are available on some of these online bird song recording repositories yep. from other wintering areas and they sort of looked at it and said oh yeah it looks similar but they didn't really analyze those other ones in the same way and so there is yeah that's true potentially the possibility that these are just weird birds in tanzania i don't yeah. actually think that's the case i don't think so either i'm i'm at least partially persuaded by their argument that the the birds they sampled in tanzania were um much further apart like 20 kilometers apart each sampling area was um, than the uh, breeding ground birds that they sampled, which were only like five kilometers apart for each sample. So um, yeah, but birds move around more on the yeah, wintering grounds, maybe. That's I true. mean, the birds yeah, flew from Europe to Africa. They're capable of moving <laughs> pretty big distances. I won't distances. argue with that. I won't so argue with that. <laughs> I, I would need some more convincing before I thought a bird wasn't going to move 20 kilometers once it got to Africa. You know? Yeah. So that's a potential problem. I think they're well aware of that. It, it does limit the conclusions you can draw a little bit. But on the other hand, the, the size of the effect that they found, yeah. how big the difference was between the breeding and the wintering birds, it was huge. It was huge. It was massive. And so those would have to be very weird little birds in a very weird spot of Tanzania for that to be sort of because of the the location in Tanzania. I yeah. think that most likely what we're seeing here is a characteristic of wintering birds. And I agree. a fairly, fairly big difference here also. I agree. So then, if birds on their wintering grounds are not singing their normal song structure, my question is, where are they getting these new songs? Are they inventing them whole cloth? Are they learning them from new neighbors? Are they, like, new neighbors that they're living next to on the wintering grounds? Are they maybe learn, remembering them from uh, long ago, early learning periods in their life? And, and even more than that, why are they singing? And oh, remember, sure. that was kind of, kind of the point of this whole thing, is yeah. there's this idea. The reason they tested this variability is they thought if they're singing for the purpose of learning on the wintering grounds, yeah. you would see that in greater variability. And so they did see the greater variability. Yep. So, I mean, this doesn't prove, but it does suggest that these birds are doing something like learning or practicing when they're on the wintering grounds. Sure. Now, in my mind, uh, you would still, I would still like to see a little bit more demonstration that there's not a very immediate use for singing there. Because basically right. the claim here is all this singing that's happening on the wintering grounds is useful to the birds six months later. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit funny that we always think of birdsong as this, like, pure breeding trait, that it's only for breeding or and, you know, territory defense and mate attraction or whatever. Because, obviously, most things that communicate communicate for a, a absolutely massive variety of reasons. And um, I don't know. I guess I don't see why birdsong on the wintering grounds wouldn't serve some other purpose, isn't serving some more immediate communication purpose between individuals. It would certainly be a simpler explanation for why they sing on the wintering grounds if that's right. actually serving some purpose in the moment. Right. 
Um, and so mate attraction, fine. They're not maybe they're not going to be doing that. Yeah. But but they might still be doing a territorial type of thing. They might not have long-term territories, but there might still be some sort of bird-to-bird aggression or territoriality sure. about food resources. Yeah. And I think they talk about in this study, they say, you know, they in the wintering grounds, they did see male birds singing very close to each other mm-hmm. and not sort of fighting. On the breeding grounds, you probably wouldn't see that. If a male no. was singing and another one was nearby, they would sort of chase each other around or something. So that suggests there's no territory ta- territoriality going on. But they do say that to really get at this, you'd have to do a territory type study on the wintering grounds where you like where you play a bird song at a bird and you see if it sort of attacks you. I mean, that's yeah. very common in breeding studies is if you want to know how territorial a bird is, you play a bird song and territorial birds, red-winged blackbirds or something, will come attack your microphone yeah, sometimes bomb and they'll the microphone. come right at you. Right. So you'd have to do something like that on the wintering grounds to sort of, to sort of rule out the possibility that the song is serving a, a function right, you know, territory function right there in the moment. Yeah. And that would maybe lend a little more support to the idea that it is a learning function, which really only benefits the bird months later when they're on the breeding grounds singing a very well-rehearsed song. Yeah, and frankly, I mean, I think there are other things that they could be communicating about that aren't just territorial defense. (laughs) And, you know, we don't need to speculate about what those might be, but I think there could be other reasons to communicate and coordinate among individuals. Yeah, or, I mean, so certainly if we think about creatures giving signals. Think about those deep sea fish that have a little glowy thing. That's for attracting prey. It's sort of a, a bait, you know? Like yep. it's very there are so many studies looking at bird song for mate attraction and bird song for territory defense that I think we often sort of f- fall back into a position of just thinking, oh, songs are either for yeah. getting a mate or defending a territory. Exactly. That's just what they're for. But I don't know, maybe maybe they're doing something else. Like, yeah. Are these birds singing to attract flies to eat? <laughs> Who knows? Right, or singing to coordinate with each other about, um, I don't know, predators or other other things. Yeah, I mean, sure. there's certainly alarm calls that deal with predator stuff and bird communication. But there's, I guess the point is there's any number of things that these vocalizations could be doing that serve a very immediate purpose on e- the wintering ground. Exactly, which does seem like probably would be a stronger motivation than practicing for the breeding season, potentially. On the other hand, there is lots of evidence from laboratory studies that birds do practice their songs, Mm -hmm. and especially birds with complex songs, they frequently learn some of the notes and different elements of their song from their neighbors, and juveniles have a very sort of mixed up, imprecise song that they seem to practice a lot and learn. And so I think this gets at your question, Ellie, of where on the wintering ground, when the birds are singing these songs that have a lot of different kinds of notes and the notes aren't very precise, are they inventing this stuff? Right. Are they learning it from other birds? Are they trying to copy other birds? And what's what's going on there? Yeah, I would be so interested to see a banded version of this study where you could track individuals. But by banded, you mean like putting a, a ring on the bird's yeah. leg? Exactly. Putting a ring on the bird's leg so that you could identify individuals. You could track individuals from their breeding grounds to their wintering grounds and look at the changes in individual birds' songs. So this study doesn't identify individual birds. Um, and so you you don't really know whether it's the same bird. And in fact, it's likely not <laughs> the same not, yeah, yeah. from the breeding ground to the wintering ground. But it's true that there are have been other, there have been other studies that suggest that birds hear 
the sounds of their neighbors during the breeding season, juvenile birds especially. And then months later, they seem to be practicing those songs that they heard from their neighbors, even when they're no longer hearing those. The neighbors have yeah. gone away, migrated away. Those juvenile birds seem to, be, seem to have some memory of what their neighbors were singing, and they seem to practice those same notes. And yeah. obviously, many of these birds return to the same locations to breed every year, and so they share a dialect, basically, with their neighbors. We've addressed this in some of the other podcasts. And so they, they do seem to remember their neighbors' dialect and practice that months later. And so there might be some of that going on, that these birds have, on the wintering grounds, are practicing things that they're remembering from the breeding grounds. Exactly. Yeah, or are they learning songs from their new neighbors on the, the wintering grounds? You know, do you arrive and suddenly you're in a new group of people, or sorry, new group of birds, and uh, there's new songs, and you think like, oh, I should brush up my song repertoire, <laughs> add a couple of the songs these dudes are singing. Maybe one thing we should do for another podcast soon is, I, I have, there are some studies trying to look at the genetic basis of song learning in birds and try to figure out what it is that allows birds to uh, imitate and memorize and learn songs. Yeah. And it, a lot of that was looking at this exact same thing. How does practice work in juvenile birds? How do birds sort of refine the sounds they're making to copy neighbors and things like this? That might be an interesting study to do. Because this, you know, if, if that's what these birds are doing on the wintering grounds, then this wintering period where they're doing this practice song, if that's what they're doing, would actually be a very, very important part of the life cycle in terms of their success on the breeding grounds. Yeah, Being absolutely. a successful breeder would depend on doing good practice of the songs and being able to learn songs well during the wintering season. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Something else I'm curious about is um, if their songs are really set and structured on the breeding grounds and then variable and um, unpredictable on the wintering grounds, what is happening on migration? Are they singing? Do they stop singing entirely on migration? Um, are they singing structured songs? Are they singing variable songs? Are they singing something in between? And it's like a gradient. And then when they get to their winter grounds, they, you know, are, are flexible and loose. And then they tighten up the strong structure as they move back to their breeding grounds. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded, Ellie, of a time you and I were birding during migration. And we saw a winter wren. And this was in a place where winter wrens don't breed. They breed fairly close, within tens or hundreds of miles, but there were no winter wrens breeding in this area. And there's this bird singing, and it was a winter wren, but we didn't know that. We'd never actually heard one sing before. And I thought, geez, I think this is a winter wren, but am I right? And so we pulled out our phone, and we pulled up a little recording of a winter wren to check ourselves to see if we identified this right. Yeah. And we played the recording, and as soon as we, as soon as it started playing, this bird that was in the trees came rushing down and landed right in front of us and yeah. started singing really hard. It, it was clearly a territorial kind of a, aggressive thing. It thought there was another winter wren there, the recording coming from my phone. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped my phone right away so I didn't bother this bird. But I guess the point is that this bird was not yet on the breeding grounds. Right. And yet already song was playing a very clear territorial or sort of male-to-male uh, -male aggressive role Absolutely. There. This was like in March, and the breeding season doesn't really begin until June in that region. So different kind of bird than this study. Many things are different, but I guess the point is territoriality could be happening. Uh, you know, if 
are these wrens territorial on the wintering grounds? Because if not, somewhere between the wintering grounds and the breeding grounds during that migration, it started to treat song as a territory indicator in some way or, or aggressive, you know, an, inter, uh, an, an aggressive interaction yeah, behavior. Sure. Um, so I'd be very curious about, about that for these two. If it's true that the songs are territorial on the breeding grounds and not on the wintering grounds, when does that switch happen? Does it happen slowly over the course of migration or Absolutely. is there some cue when they arrive at the breeding grounds that sort of trips them into changing how they treat the song? And it'd be interesting to look at, at how that varies with age of the bird, too, um, and maturity, because we, we think of young birds as more uh, variable vocalizers um, in their first year when they're still learning songs and things like that. Does that variability continue to happen as they get older? I don't know. These authors suggest that one role that this winter learning period could play would, is that it would allow older birds to continue adding new elements to their song every year. Yeah. If they're able to practice during the winter and and learn some new phrases that they heard, it lets them sort of stay up to date with the current dialect in their area. There is something appealing about this theory of like the wintering grounds as a creative retreat. <laughs> to like yeah, retire to the wintering grounds and and cultivate your song well, for uh, I think you're really cultivating, performance in the breeding season. You're cultivating how well you're able to yell at your neighbors. <laughs> think of new insults. <laughs> <laughs> well, once again, the article is singing behind the stage. Thrush nightingales produce more variable songs on their wintering grounds. It's all about song learning during the wintering season for birds. You can find the link to the article on our uh, podcast page. And also look out for the link there to the Patreon account. We would really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. The funding for my PhD position comes from a project funded by Science Foundation Ireland. I'm at University College Dublin in the Ecological Modeling Group of John Yearsley. If you want to find out more about our research in the Ecological Modeling Group, you can go to www.ucd.ie backslash ecomodel.